All right. Hebrews 11. We're going to be in verses 28 through 33 tonight. Um, and then, as I said, next week we are going to hit the holidays and start talking a little bit about that. It's not going to be done in one week. Um, I know at least two weeks, but it might kind of piggyback to do another two or three weeks that will deal with the Sabbath that is going to also be with that. So it's not all just the holidays, but all of these things tie together. And I think that it might be a good time to just talk about the Sabbath, um, kind of connect it to those holidays. So we'll kind of see, I kind of expect there's going to be a lot of discussion. So that's why I say I'm pretty sure it's going to be two weeks to get through the holidays. All right, well, um, verse 28 of chapter 11 is where we are at, and it says this. By faith, and we're still talking about Moses here. We left off with Moses, but really we didn't talk much about Moses last week. We talked about Moses' parents and their faith in hiding Moses. And then it says, by faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Now what I find kind of neat about this is, why did he keep the Passover? For fear of judgment. They kept the Passover lest he who destroyed the firstborn would touch them. The whole thing that's brought about here in this great faith chapter is by faith, in keeping the Passover, they would be spared from judgment. Now, when we put this in perspective under the New Covenant, you have to understand, I'm not saying, okay, you guys better celebrate Passover or you're under judgment. We have to remember, what is Passover? It's about Yeshua. It's about Jesus. He's the Passover Lamb. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, without Christ... We are under judgment. And so there is an aspect, though, of this that we need the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And by keeping Passover, in a sense, that's by keeping Christ at the forefront of our mind, keeping what he has done for us, that he has taken away our sins. That's really what the, the Passover was all about, so that you would be forgiven and the angel of death would pass over you, that you are protected. So it's a picture of salvation. But for fear of judgment is why he kept it. So uh, the Egyptians who did not keep it, who did not have faith, who were doing things on their own, they were drowned. Uh, just take you there a little bit to Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. Now, how appropriate with all of this wind tonight, see? And the waters were divided, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So, imagine, I mean, you know, I went outside here just a moment ago, and the wind is just absolutely howling out there. 
Can you imagine the wind there was and darkness? And you have to go out in that. You're in an unfamiliar area. You don't know where you're at. Okay? And you've got all of this wind. This That would just be absolutely terrifying. You're being pursued by, you're being pursued by those who want to kill you. Yeah. Who are way stronger. They've got chariots. They've got horses. You've got nothing. And I don't remember if it was Daniel Joseph or Bill Cloud who really kind of, he talked about this. And it really kind of puts it in perspective. Uh, some of the things that the Bible does kind of mention, but we don't pick up on those details as you read it. It kind of just goes over your head. But the fact that it seems like they were on dry ground, but behind them, it, it had to have been raining, pouring rain, because the mud starts coming, and God was kind of a wall for them as well. And God did give them light. The darkness was still on the Egyptians. Can you imagine the Egyptians? There's some indications, and I can't remember all of what it was, but that they may have even started going in before they even realized. And you can imagine the lightning flashing. And, you know, as lightning flashes, you get little glimpses of stuff. And I can't remember what it was, if it was a Hebrew word or if it was just Jewish tradition or what it was. But that the Egyptians maybe had pursued them into the, the wall of water. And then they're in there. And then all of a sudden they see where they are and how terrifying that would be. And then they try getting away and the waters come in. Like in Prince of Egypt, the one that for the kids, Pharaoh is like splashed up on the wall or, you know, on a rock. And he's like, Ramses! Well, first of all, our, I don't think that, uh, you know, Ramses is the wrong time period for this to take place. Now, I'm not gonna get into that tonight. Uh, my message on archeology span and the Bible will go through that. I think there's good evidence biblically and historically to identify when this was, which Pharaoh was there and everything. It was not Ramses. Now the other thing is that uh, in, in that movie where Ramses is killed or whatever, uh, you see a lot of the people today saying Pharaoh maybe survived this. He could not have. And the reason I say that is because in the book of Psalms, it says Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the Red Sea. What's interesting in verse 12 of chapter 14 here, I don't have it up here for you, but we see at that point they were ready to go back. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And so you can imagine when there's a wall of water on both sides of them here, would they be, I know I'd be thinking, I hope those stay there. I hope, you know, hurry, keep moving. And I'm sure that they were screaming and scared and all of this because they don't have the faith yet that they need. And so these people going through are kind of weak. The one that we're talking about here is Moses, the one leading them. They don't have a choice. It's like be killed by the Egyptians or risk walking into a haunted house in, in essence. And so I, I just can't even imagine what that was like and the emotional just roller coaster that they go through and then after they get out and the the army is killed and then they start praising God I mean you would think that that would be enough to cause people to say all right never again will I doubt you Lord never again and it just doesn't work that way miracles don't bring people to faith you know this is what 
Jesus said even, you know, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And I personally think that it is a picture, like all of the Old Testament is, it's a picture of end times. That this is what we're going to have to face, guys, is that I keep telling my wife in what's going on in the world here right now, you have to just have faith. It doesn't matter what we see going on in the world right now. It doesn't matter what the news is reporting. It doesn't matter what, you know, uh, what our sight is. We don't live by sight. There's going to come a day when I'm telling you, it is going to look as bleak as you could ever even imagine. And that's when the rubber meets the road, when our faith is tested to say, do you trust God? And part of that is being willing to lay down your life and say, oh, well, if I die, I die. That's what happened with Esther. Remember before she goes in to the king. It was, you reach this point to where you have to surrender and stop fighting for your life and realize that your life is in God's hands. And there's a day I think we're going to have to face that, many of us. So meditate on that. Think about that. Because this is the kind of faith that it's being talked about. It's like what Noah was saying. After studying Noah, he said he's not worthy to be named Noah because the faith we're talking about, you've got to take it off of the pages of this and put it into perspective of what they were really going through. These aren't just words. Put yourself in their shoes. Psalm 55.3 says, Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring... <clears throat> down trouble upon me and in wrath they hate me fearfulness and trembling have come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me the voice of the enemy is no doubt going to be attacking you someday okay i talk to people throughout the week who can get fearful of things going on in their life that's the voice of the enemy Okay? And he's trying to bring you down. He's trying to bring trouble upon you because he hates you. But the voice of faith says, you know what? Noth this, I surrender. Everything I have, all that I am belongs to you, Lord. My life is in your hands and I trust you. Period. So, <clears throat> like I said, the devil wants to cause fear. And that's exactly what Israel is experiencing right now. Fear that I don't even think I can imagine. So when Hebrews is saying, by faith they entered the Red Sea, uh, you better believe that that took faith. That was uh, a faith moment. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 kind of helps us understand how we're supposed to overcome by faith here in 1 John. But 1 Corinthians 10 first says this, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Like we talked about last week, he's going to take you to the very brink where you think you can't handle this anymore. But you can. Okay? He, he wants you I think God wants you to do that, as we said last week, to test us because he wants you to have absolutely no strength left because it's not our fight. Do you remember when, when God 
had Abraham cut these animals in half to make a covenant with him. And the animals were on cut in half. Blood would go into this trench. And normally what we've seen in archaeology is covenants were made this way to where both parties would go through that covenant, the bloody trench. Basically it was saying, if I break the covenant, you can do this, what we did to these animals, you can do it to me. Well, what I found neat about that is that birds come. Abraham, uh, Abraham goes into this deep sleep, and then these birds come. Well, first the birds come, and he chases them away. And God puts him in a deep sleep, basically saying, no, 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 you can't do anything here. Seventeen times in that chapter, it says this. God says, this is my covenant to you. It was never Abraham's covenant. It was always God's promise to Abraham. And so when Abraham is trying to put his two cents in, you might say, protect it or put any sort of work into it, God has to put him to sleep so that I think, personally, I think so that he would realize this, you have no strength. You have no say, no power in this at all. This is all about me and my promises to you. And I think that's what faith is. God wants us to get to that point to where we realize this battle does not belong to me. We talked about Hanukkah a week or two ago. We're going to talk about it again coming up. But the bottom line is the theme of Hanukkah is not by might, not by strength, but by the Spirit of God. They knew they weren't going to win this by their power, how many swords they had. As a matter of fact, they were the underdog big time. You look at the battles in, in Israel that have gone on in 1973, the Yom Kippur War, and all of these absolutely incredible how outnumbered Israel was, and Israel wins. I'm telling you, you study those, the wars of Israel, you will see things of biblical proportions that went on there. I got to tell this story, the first time we went to Israel, well, not the first time, but before this time that we went, we went to, on to the army base, and they were talking, they, they brag up their army and all of this, and they were saying how the... In this war, they had, I can't remember if it was three or five tanks. And the other side, the Jordanians, they had 300 tanks. They had all these aircraft and everything, and they're coming across the border. Israel is in trouble. And so they kind of made it sound like it was their prowess that these, there was one guy in a tank who would go up on a hill, and he'd go to the other hill, and he'd kept kind of going back, you know, tank five, and this is tank 12, and this is, you know, whatever to make it sound like there were all these different tanks. Well, the, these 300 tanks were coming and stopped. And the, whoever it was, the colonel, I don't know, one of the, the, the head of this army camp that we were at, this tank place, is he said this, to this day, we still do not know why they stopped. But that gave them time to get other tanks from other areas and reinforcements and whatnot. But he said, to this day, we don't know why. Well, we get home. One of the guys that was on our trip was in a Bible study over in Council Bluffs. And he says, he's telling this story. And there's a Palestinian or a Jordanian guy there. He says, I can tell you why, because I was in that battle on the other side. He said, we all heard a roar of a lion. All of us heard it. We were all 
terrified. We didn't know what was going on. And oh, by the way, I forgot to tell, people were abandoning their tanks and running. They didn't know why. Okay, but according to this guy, it's because we heard lion, a lion roaring and everybody was petrified. Okay, that is a miracle of biblical proportions there. And that's the kind of thing that I believe that when we walk by faith, you will see someday. Remember that in the Old Testament, there was about 400 years of silence before Jesus came to where they, they weren't hearing much. I think we're kind of in that period of silence before he comes again, where it's just not, not that he doesn't speak to us through the word and whatnot. He does. But I don't think that it's as much as we're going to see in the future. But the people who are going to see it are those that live by faith, who are willing to enter into that water. Why do you think some of us are so, us meaning I'm the worst, are the worst, are so cynical to those things? Like, I don't know. I think it's because the devil has, has gotten his foot in there and the churches have become so compromised and so corrupt that there's so much fake. Yeah, it's it yeah. even the spirit. I believe in speaking in tongues. Okay, I believe in that. But there is a false spirit that does that exact same thing. If you've ever watched my message on the Kundalini spirit, it's awful to watch, but you need to watch it. There is a false spirit in the churches today that acts exactly like what the Holy Spirit does. And I think that everybody who feels like there is a, a warm fuzzy in church, or they get to start speaking in a tongue, they think, oh, it's God. No, you test the spirits to see if they are of God. Even speaking in tongues, you test that spirit to see if it's the right spirit. If we weren't supposed to test them, God would not have said anything about it. How would you test a spirit? Um, I've got a great book that... I can't remember the name of it here, but I'll have to get it to you. But basically, this pastor, there was a church just a few blocks away from him, and the pastor's wife came, and she, he said, can you say Jesus is Lord in tongues? Can you praise him and call him Lord in tongues? And she couldn't do it. And she, she was like, wow, blown away by it type thing. You know, just that type of thing. So, again, I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't work. I believe the Spirit is very active today. But I think that we have allowed, because we have become complacent, to allow other spirits into the church, that it's a dangerous thing and we have to be careful. And we can't just be willy-nilly about everything goes and it feels good, it looks good, therefore it must be good. No, the devil disguises himself as an angel of light and that's a dangerous thing. When I go out and speak, sometimes I, I use an example. I do one of my favorite magic tricks that just uh, an amazing card trick. And I tell people, I don't touch the cards. I give them the cards. They get to pick a card. I don't touch a thing. They pick a number. Then they count down that number, and it's the card they pick without me touching the cards. But before they reveal it, I said, okay, I'm going to pray to Jesus right now. I'm going to pray that that card becomes the, the, the four of spades. If it's the four of spades, will you believe in Jesus? Okay. Then 
they reveal it's the four of spades or whatever card they picked. And I say, now you all have to believe in Jesus, right? And even then, they'll, they all know, yeah, no, no, no. Why? Because you know it's a magic trick. You will always have a rescue device or escape to explain what that is. It's a magic trick. I don't know how he did it, but it's a magic trick. It, whatever. And that's why Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Miracles, science, proving creation, none of that brings people to faith. The only thing that brings people to faith is the truth of the Word of God and faith in that. Once you have that faith, then you start to understand the world around you, creation and so on. But the bottom line is, miracles do not bring people to faith. They can't because we will always find a, an explanation. And either that or maybe it's short-lived because, wow, that was amazing. Look at these people who crossed the Red Sea. It's not long and they're going to start complaining again. Okay, it's short-lived. That's the flesh. That's, but we don't live by the flesh. We should live by the spirit and truth. And that's one of the reasons why I think music in churches, I'm, I know I'm, I'm not musical at all, but the philosophy of music in the church is important to me because of the fact that I see Satan working in it so much. And an emotional draw. I'm not saying emotions can't be there. I think emotions should be there. But if emotions are what are drawing you to Christ, that will not last. And so many churches, that's the key for them is the worship, to, to get you to feel that warm and fuzzy. I call it the conjuring up of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5, 4 says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Faith. It's not the miracle that you are seeking that should give you faith. Those of you who are struggling and waiting for God to answer a prayer right now, what if he doesn't answer it? Is that going to shake your faith? No, you should have faith that God knows better than you do, and his answer was different than yours, but it was for your good. But if our faith is based on you know, victory being God answering the prayer the way I'm telling him to answer it, uh, you're not going to stand strong. You will fall. We have faith regardless, not by sight, but by the promises faith. Anyway, verse 30 goes on, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Jericho's way back there in Joshua chapter 6. And it says this, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, and all you men of war, you shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. So once every day for six days they march around. And the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
and we know what happens when that seventh trumpet blows. Now, a couple of things I want to point out here. Archaeology has shown Jericho had double walls. There was like a huge wall, a little incline, another huge wall, and then inside was the city. So two of them fell down. And archaeology supports exactly what the Bible says happened. When they found the, the granaries were still plumb full of grain, they didn't have to, uh, normally in those times they would besiege the city and they would eat all the grain up in the city and they'd basically starve them until they were willing to give up. That's not what happened at Jericho. Um, it also kind of explains that Rahab would, was living in one of the walls. Okay, probably that outside wall. They were really thick. So this isn't just a little wall that could come tumbling down. This is a miraculous event taking place. And I think we talked about this recently too, just Jericho is also a picture of end times. Really the whole Old Testament is. But bottom line, if you look at the Exodus, you got Passover. Jesus dies. Uh, they go through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10 says that was a type of baptism, right? So you're saved. You've got this baptism. You go out into the wilderness for 40 years. That's your life, okay, where you're going to be tested. And at the end of those 40 years, you get to go into your promised land. And when do you get to go in? When the seventh trumpet blows. At the end, it seems at, at the end of 6,000 years, the beginning of your seventh day, okay? So all of these parallels that are there. And who leads you into the promised land? Joshua. You know what Joshua's name is? Jesus. That's right. The answer is always Jesus. Yeah. Yeshua. It's Yeshua. Yeshua. It's the same name, the old and the new. And so that's one of the things when we just call him Jesus, we lose that without understanding his name. Nothing wrong with calling him Jesus. But I think there's value in understanding the name especially when we see how important names are in Scripture. Uh, you may have heard me speak before on the names of Revelation and, and Genesis, where the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, how they're ordered, gives the gospel. It just, it's outright. It's right in the names. It, it's incredible. I, I have a newsletter on it on my website at creationinstruction.org. Um, if you want to go find it, I think it's called What's in a Name. But... Bottom line is, you give people names because there's meaning. Well, I want to know the name. Jesus has no meaning. Yeshua does. The Lord, Yah, Yahweh, Shua means save. So the Lord saves is what Joshua means, or Yeshua. So um, anyway, all these parallels are amazing to me. But bottom line is, they're looking at this fortified city. There was no way they were getting into this city. No way. And yet, because of faith, they do. I mean, how insane would it be for me to tell you, you guys want to get into the White House or the Pentagon? I just want you to walk around the outskirts of that, you know, seven days, you know, blow your horn once every six days, but on the seventh day, do this. You'd be like, yeah, whatever, I'm going to go back to work. Okay? So that's the kind of faith it is that these people are having. Um, like I said, we, we, we can read about miracles, 
but it's different when you're facing the trial. And I think we need to meditate on that a little more. Um, boy, I can't find that address. Anybody know when it says uh, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but none will, oh, Matthew chapter 12, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So it's somewhere in Matthew 12. Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I'm bringing you here because I want you to see when the seventh trumpet blowed, 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 <laughs> on the seventh day, <laughs> then they enter the promised land. In Revelation, you go to the seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet blows, what happens? The kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God. You enter into the promised land. So definitely... A connection here going back to Joshua it says it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn now I've got that here in Hebrew because it's it's we just finished doing the the feast of trumpets and on the feast of trumpets it's Yom Teruah but that word Teruah remember we said it's really a shout and it's associated with the trumpets but the ram's horn is not that. Here it's hail bell, not teruah. And hail bell is only used really in three different places. Exodus 19, when we see the Ten Commandments are being given at Mount Sinai, we see the, yo, uh, the hail bell. We also see it in Leviticus 25, and it says to do it at the, uh, uh, the Jubilee year, at the end of seven Sabbaths of years, or 49 years, on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the ram's horn is to be blown. And the ram's horn, or that Jubilee, I should say, is associated with what the Jews believe is when the Lord will come back, the Messiah will come on a Jubilee, uh, a year of canceling debts and freedom and all of that. So... The ram's horn being blown here is significant because when we see it in other places, it's significant places because this is the third place here in Joshua that you see it. It's not your regular everyday thing. And then it says, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, okay, then that all the people shall shout with a great shout, a teruah. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So, at that sound of the trumpet, the ram's horn, and then the trumpet, my point is, is there are two trumpet types, two types of trumpets being blown here. Okay? And I've always associated the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 as just being the trumpet but there are two different types of trumpets, which may then, as we've been talking about, uh, if any of you have been watching the one on eschatology or end times that I've been posting, um, last week I did one on Matthew 24, comparing it to Revelation 6. And comparing Revelation, 
6 to Matthew 24, Luke, Mark, um, Malachi, Joel, all of them, I don't see how we're not like gone after the sixth seal is opened. Because the Lord always comes back after the sun and moon are darkened. In Joel, in Malachi, everywhere in the Old Testament and in the New. Go look it up. Go, go look it up. Okay? So maybe there's something to do with that. I don't know. Um, but anyway, after that, what happens? There's a great shout. That is going to be a celebration, a praise where God gets the glory. It continues in verse 9. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So the first six days, you want to talk about creepy, being the people in Jericho watching these guys, what are they doing? They go around, then they leave. Not a word. Second day, go around, not a word. Because they're about to enter the promised land, and it's to be silent. Look what Revelation 8 verse 1 says. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour which is proof that there are no women in heaven. <laughs> My wife told that joke in a fifth grade, and she got called into the principal's office the next day because one student didn't understand it was a joke. <laughs> you can't help that people are stupid. <laughs> <Amen>. So, <laughs> and you wonder why she got called into the principal's office. No. Anyway, bottom line, there's silence in heaven. This is at the seventh seal. This is the beginning. What happens at the seventh seal? Nothing. It's the beginning of the trumpets, where the seven trumpets are going to blow. And as I said, I think that we're gone at the sixth seal. At the sixth seal, we get to go. Then there's this silence before the trumpets blow, the seven trumpets blow, and then you have the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of God. Revelation 11:15 says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. What happened in Jericho? At the seventh trumpet, that's when the loud shouts came. Here, we see the same thing, saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. So, I think that these are strong parallels. Verse 15 continues, It came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day, marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. In the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. Remember he said the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God. That's exactly what's going on in Jericho. It was worldly, but it's becoming the kingdom of Israel's kingdom of God. Guys, we, when we think of heaven, everybody always thinks of the gold streets up there in the clouds somewhere, right? Heaven, we have to realize, is earth and heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, Peter tells us. Even in the Lord's Prayer, it says, may on earth as it is in heaven, 
may his will be done. This earth is going to be restored in a way, I believe, like the Garden of Eden someday. And so the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God. It says, it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city. So, um, ultimately, faith to do what they said. You know, silent, don't talk. I would love to see a church group be able to obey that single order today. There isn't a chance. I was thinking that when you read that, I'm like, oh, that's not even possible. Not even possible. You get people, and you know somebody's going to be like, what do you think is going to go on? He said, not a, not a voice. You be quiet. And that kind of respect for authority has been lost today, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, just as Joshua was leading them into the city, that's what Yeshua does. Even when we, we see what happens, Yeshua is the one that's coming down, and he leads us, you know, the Armageddon battle type of thing. Verse 21, they, uttered, they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and women, woman, young and old, ox and sheep, donkey with the edge of the sword. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. So this kind of shows you the future of the ungodly, first of all. They all are going to be destroyed. And then the silver and the gold was to be brought into the Lord's temple, okay, the, the tabernacle. It, it belonged to God. And, and this, there, there's a couple of things here. Let me, the first thought to finish out, the gold and the silver, all else is destroyed. It's kind of like what Peter says about us, like I said, we are gold and to be refined in the fire. The dross or the ungodly are removed, and the pure is what is taken into the God's house. Okay? That's us. Second thing, notice who's killed. Man and woman, young and old. You know, one of the things that a lot of people try to, you know, I, I guess make fun of Christianity and, and say that God is this evil guy is because not only women were killed, but babies, children. It happened at Noah's flood. This tells you how God's justice and holiness, I, I guess how holy he is, it doesn't matter the age that sin is sin, even if you're a little kid. It's that simple. Sin is sin. And this is why... This is a picture of judgment. Uh, Noah, a couple of weeks ago, was talking about the sins of the Amalekites had not yet reached its full measure. When Israel left Egypt, they were not allowed to go and wipe these people out yet. Why? Because there was still some good. The sin, I think Noah described it as being a cup had not been full yet. But the sin of the Amorites hadn't reached its full measure. Once it does, God's coming and he's going to wipe you out. Young, old, babies, Elderly, it makes no difference 
when the Lord comes back, it's whether or not you know Jesus, you will be wiped out. This is a picture of judgment day. I know, that's the... Yeah, that would be a whole, a whole Bible study in itself. And I don't know if I can give you an answer. I can tell you this. David had a baby because there's then you get the aspect of some believe in the infant baptism. Will that, you know, does that kind of get them in? Well, David said this to when his son, who he had through uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, the first child dies. And he dies at seven days old, which was one day before he would have been circumcised. And David says, I will go to him. He will not come to me. Okay. But here's the thing. There are some verses, and I can't really give it to you here right now, but again, this would be a whole different Bible study, that do indicate there's something about a covering in the home. That this is why a woman is to be submissive to her husband. This is why a, a daughter or a son is to be submissive to their parents, because there is a covering that does take place. When Abraham has Ishmael and Hagar, they were not allowed to remain under his tent, his covering. That's why they had to go, because the covenant wasn't for them. But if you were under Abraham's house, his covenant was on them to some extent. Yep. And I don't have any great answers, and I know there's going to be a lot of people who will disagree with me on this, that will say, no, their babies are all saved. Okay, They're innocent. They don't know any better at this point. I don't know how it works. All I know is what Scripture says, is there were, at times it even says infants, Okay, that there are babies being killed, and it is not, that's not just for God to do that. But I do know this, that I trust God knows. I don't know if he, in his foreknowledge, is saying, all right, this household is going to have this soul be put in that kid. I don't even know how that works. I don't know, and I don't need to figure it out. I just have to trust God that he's doing. He cannot be unjust. He cannot be unloving, and therefore I'm going to let him do what he does, but I see that he did wipe out children. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Not just from the time you're born, but from the moment of conception. Psalm 51.5. Like I said, I, I personally, I'm, I'm with Devin there. I mean, I, I believe that when my children were born, they were beautiful, sinful little creatures. You do not have to... Yeah. You don't even have to teach a child to be selfish, a baby. They are selfish from the get-go. Okay, you don't, you know, you have to teach them to share, right? You, you don't have to teach them to lie, to be deceitful. Josiah was so, he was the most deceitful kid I'd ever met at such a small little age. Oh, he was... I am throwing him under the bus. <laughs> yeah, I, remember when he would, he would uh, 
He had just gone pee to get an M&M for going pee. We were trying to potty train him. Okay. So he, uh, we're passing like literally one minute uh, apart. And he said, she goes, Josiah already went to the bathroom. He just got his M&M. I said, okay, I get into the house. He comes, um, he goes, I gotta go pee. I'm like, so he runs into the bathroom. I think something's up. So I go and I peek around the corner and I watch. And he had a, a measuring cup that we used to cook our cake tonight stashed behind the toilet. And he would dip water out of the toilet, stick it into his little kid toilet, hide the thing, and then he comes running out. I peed. So, yeah. Then you are next level. Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't have all the answers, and you're free to disagree on some of these things. I'm just saying there's no question that God's wiping out infants. And he is not unjust, and he is not unloving. He, he knows. I trust him. Um, getting back to Hebrews so that we can at least finish this part up. Uh, verse 31, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Rahab, because she had action that followed her faith, was spared. And again, we've talked about that many times. Faith without action, without works, is dead. It was in her uh, doing this that she got into that faith chapter because she believed what the reports were. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but bottom line is that she's one of two women mentioned in the faith chapter. Rahab and Sarah are the two. Now, what's kind of neat about this is what was Rahab's uh, occupation? Well, God made sure it's in there. Heaven, you know, heaven forbid we should forget that she's a yeah. prostitute. I just like, asked Bobby in heaven when we meet Rahab, do we refer to her as the heart of Rahab? <laughs> the prostitute oh, Rahab? <laughs> but Rahab. isn't that something? I love that about Scripture is it's honest. Because if everybody was just perfect, how would that make you feel? There's no way I can live up to these standards. Right? Isn't she in Jesus' ancestry? She is. She is in Jesus' ancestry. She, Rahab had Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. And it continues in that line. Um, but I think there's another reason, too, that it's mentioned here that she's a harlot beyond that, although I think that's part of it. I think her life is prophetic as well, as you're going to see here in a moment. Joshua 2 continues, verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Okay, Numbers 25, it says here, you know, prior to this, before going in, it says that... <clears throat> Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. We're in the same area here. This is the same location. Notice the Acacia Grove in Numbers and where Jericho is at. There, earlier, before this, the Israelites had committed sin by going and sleeping with these harlots, these prostitutes, and... Uh, 24,000 people end up dying because of it. So this is, remember the story of Phineas? 
and he runs the spear through him in, in being zealous for God. But bottom line is, years before, 24,000 people are going to die in this very area because of harlotry. And now we see it's because of a harlot that the faith, they're able to enter into the promised land, just a complete 180 here. So it's kind of a neat parallel. It goes on, it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the man or the men who have come to you, you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the women or the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. She's lying. It happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out where I when or where the men went I do not know. She lies again. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. So not only did she hide them but she defended them and she lied twice to her king. And yet she's in the great faith chapter. So this could also be a whole Bible study but I'll just kind of give you some food for thought. Is it okay to lie? under certain circumstances, never. or never lie. She because was redeemed under the covenant, so she did not have the expectation of upholding God's laws. Okay. So what about Cory and hiding the Jews? That's where I was going next, is maybe it's the question. The question isn't really this. Do you have Jews in your home? The real question is, can I kill your Jews? And so, I don't know. Like I said, it's an interesting um, thought. Maybe it is just, you know, one of the, hey, all these people are sins. Uh, David was a murderer, but he was still faithful. Okay, maybe it's just that Rahab was a liar and she was faithful. It's an interesting question. Like I said, we could do a whole Bible study just on that, but I want you to kind of have some food for thought here because... You know, the Bible does talk about us being wise and, you know, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And I think there can be an argument made for answering the question based on the real question that's being asked, not, you know, yeah, yeah. But you want to talk about being put into a, a, a faith test right there be able to say yes and have the faith that God's going to take care of it, even if those children die. So, anyway, we, we won't dwell there too long. But Verse 6 says, But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. So she has such faith that God was with them, with the Israelites, that she's willing to forsake her own people here. And it says that she acknowledged by faith 
what she heard. She heard that God is with them. We've heard what you've done to these other places. And that was enough for her to believe that it was true. We're, we're kind of in the same boat to some extent. We've heard the miracles of God. We've heard of his faithfulness. We've heard of his justice and his wrath. Do you believe it? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So I love the fact that now she publicly confesses basically that Jesus is Lord. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth beneath. There's a public confession like Paul who says, you know, whoever confesses Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart will be saved. And that's Rahab right there. Kind of the opposite of Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. But here's a woman who just heard about it and believed it. And again, just my mind keeps going back to what we're going on with this country today. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying like you have never prayed before. That's faith. Verse 12, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my Father's house and give me a true token. What's interesting is we know nothing about the rest of Rahab's family. But her father's house was spared. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. So... <clears throat> Really, ultimately, it's Abraham's covenant. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Kind of being lived out here. But I also see the wall of separation that the New Testament talks about. That one of the main reasons Jesus came was to bring down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. We talked about this last week a little bit, how he came only for the lost sheep of Israel. Even when Caiaphas is prophesying that it would be better for one man to die, you know, for the nation, for the, then, uh, I don't remember how he put it, but when Caiaphas prophesies, because he was high priest that year, he even says that it was for the sons of Israel. And so there's all of these pictures that are there. And here we're seeing that wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, I think, being prophetically pictured, that wall being torn down. Because here is a Gentile that is not only welcome to join with them, but does become native-born Israel, does become in the great faith chapter, and has been a harlot. Well, what are Gentiles? They have been harlots. 
They have been prostitutes. We have prostituted, you know, uh, been unfaithful to God. And now you are being brought in, forgiven, welcomed into the promise of Abraham. So that picture, I think, is there. The other thing, too, as far as, um, you know, spare my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all they have. I'm kind of reminded of Lot. Lot was going around and saying, hey, you know, God is going to destroy this place. And his family was like, whatever, you're joking or just thought he was nuts or whatever. These people believed it. So I don't think, I'm not necessarily saying they weren't unbelievers because there was an act of faith for them to come into her home. They had to be in her house uh, to be spared. So they must have had some sort of faith there as well. Verse 22, But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. Joshua spared Rahab the harlot. I mean, if this was me, I would just, can you please stop calling me that? What do I have to do to prove that I've changed, right? Bottom line is, because she hid the messengers, again, we have that uh, um, action to their faith. Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had, so she dwells in Israel to this day because... She hid the messengers. Now, it would be easy to say because of works. No, it was because of her faith that that work was there. So um, it's kind of like Jesus telling the disciples, you go to the Gentiles or Cornelius with Peter. Okay, She hid them because of faith, and um, there is a reward in that. We see that Cornelius was a man of faith. And that's why God said, Send Peter, go to this man's house. Whatever. Same kind of things. Let me just show you what James says about Rahab. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So once again, works connected to the faith. I'll tell you guys, we, I grew up learning faith alone, scripture alone, Okay, faith alone is not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it says the opposite. You are saved not by faith alone, it says in James. Faith without works is dead. Not saved by works. Don't get me wrong. We've covered this a number of times. But if you don't have works attached with your faith, you don't have faith. You have lied to yourself. You are deceived. Matthew 21 says, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So, <clears throat> ponder that a little bit. If you believe that judgment was coming truly believed that judgment was coming. Do you think you'd get off TV, Facebook, spend less time wasted in this world? 
or do we believe it in word only? It's easy to say, I believe, I believe, yeah, Jesus is coming, but I got a lifetime ahead of me. You know, we've been talking about the Lord could be coming back. Guys, what if he's not coming back in our lifetime? In, I'm at the age now, and I know I'm not even that old, but I'm at the age now, it doesn't matter. If I told you the Lord was coming back in 20 years, you'd be like, woo, you know that? We're getting pretty close here. Guess what? That may be all I have left. I may not even have that left. Most of us here, we're in the end times because you're going to die whether he comes back in your lifetime or not. Okay? <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> but you get my point? So we should have that urgency regardless of whether we're on that edge right now or not. You should have that urgency. And if you truly believe that there are rewards in heaven waiting for you and that we are storing up you know, good things, we should be investing our time, our energy, our thoughts in training our children and others about Jesus Christ. That's why we are here. Not to go hunting deer and shopping. And, and I'm not saying you can't do those things. I'm just saying if that's where your passion is and that's where your mind is at all the time, is on things of this world, there's something wrong. And I would think every one of us, I know me for sure, have had struggles with that at times. Where I can go and feel like I have been distracted by this world. I should be focused on more godly things. So, um, One more here, and then we'll almost done. we got two verses left. What more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, you know, or um, escaped the edge of the sword out of weaknesses were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. I mean, we could study all of these individual cases out and you know, spend the next three weeks doing that, but we're not going to do that. But what I want you to see is that all of these lists are grouped into two, two separate groups. One of those groups is a set of prophets, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And then you've got these other more warriors, you know, Gideon, Barak, uh, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. So there's two different sets there. Uh, just giving you some structure that I think the, is there for a reason. Anyway, um, we're just going to look at a little bit here in Samuel. When they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord. So notice, they're in trouble. So they cry out to God and said, we've sinned. Repentance. Boy, I'll tell you, if we're not at the end, I hope this is where we're at, at least, at the minimum. I hope 
that we are at a point to where we're not just going to be saying, God, help me, help me, but that we as a country will say, we have sinned. We have tolerated homosexuality, pornography, divorce. We have tolerated um, euthanasia, drugs. We have tolerated all of these things. And that's what I think that we need to do is do that. We have sinned. You can't just cry out to God, hey, we're in trouble. You have to repent and acknowledge why we are in trouble. Because we've been silent. We haven't fought. You know, we haven't stood up even in our workplace against homosexuality or whatever the case might be because I'd lose my job. Okay? What if, if all Christians would stand? I think it would make a big difference. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks. And we'll talk about that next week. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Not just deliver us so that I can keep living my life the way I've wanted to. You deliver us, we're going to change. We're going to be different. So they're crying out because of this oppression. And then it says the Lord sent... Jeroboam, now remember that's Gideon. Jeroboam means Baal will contend uh, because he had knocked down the, the idols of Dagon and whatnot. But Dan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. For the time will fall, or uh, Hebrews 11.32 says, The time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. What I want you to see is that he is quoting here in Hebrews the Septuagint. Remember I said one out of every two verses in the New Testament quoting the Old Testament come from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Here's one case where we can tell why. Because look at the names in the Septuagint for Samuel 12:11. Jeroboam, we got him. Barak, don't have him there. Jephthah, got him. And Samson. We have these different ones. Okay, but notice in Hebrews 11, he's not quoting the first Samuel that we see up top, which is the Masoretic text. He's quoting the Septuagint because it matches perfectly with Hebrews 11.32 and 1 Samuel 12.11 in the Septuagint. So, um, Judges 6.11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazurite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So Israel has been stripped of power here. And it's kind of like the Jews in the Holocaust. Everything had been taken away from them. This is the type of thing that you have to understand where Israel is at this time. They are servants. They're slaves. They are in crisis at this time. And it goes on. Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? That sounds like a familiar thing, doesn't it? Where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? I love that. Fathers were still teaching their children, but apparently children weren't honoring God. They had been misbehaving. 
Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? I'm going to say that he got that a little bit wrong. God just kind of overlooks it. God did not forsake them. They had forsaken God. And remember that in this country. If we fall, it is not because God has forsaken us. It is because we have forsaken God. So, kind of a parallel. Verse 14 continues, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon basically is responding, You got the wrong guy. Okay, I, I can't do this. But God promises to be with him. The Lord said to him, Surely I'll be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who talk with me. Now, you can look at this as weakness, or you could look at it as testing the spirits. Okay, is he just testing to be sure that this is God? Don't know. He's listed in, in the faith chapter. So it seems like he had faith. It, it, he, this isn't a man that doesn't have faith. Um, verse 18, do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. He said, I'll wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. By the way, these are the same things that are used in Passover. Unleavened bread is, you never used yeast in an offering anyway. But anyway, the meat he had put in a basket, he put broth in a pot. He brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, pour out the broth. Gideon did so. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. In other words, Gideon said, I can't see God's face, I'm dead, I'm a dead man. And he said, it's okay, you're not going to die. So the angel basically receives this offering, and a lot of people think this is God. This is not you know, an angel, because many times in the Old Testament we see the angel of the Lord appearing. We see it with Abraham, and that is God himself. I think it's Jesus, to be honest with you, because that is Jesus appearing in the flesh, God in flesh. God manifested. Um, but anyway, just he, he wasn't there to save at that time. So, See the same thing with Manoah and Samson as well. Uh, Jacob wrestling with God too. Sees him face to face, thinks he's going to die. So anyway, jumping to verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He sent messengers. Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. I, I'm just basically giving the highlights here of what's happening. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Then he does his whole fleece thing that you guys are familiar with. Then the Lord said, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. So what God is doing in all of this is kind of what we've been talking about before. He is stripping you of all your power, all your worldly hope, any strength that you might have. 
He wants it gone. Because Gideon is saying, how can I do this? And God's saying, you're not going to do this. All you need is faith. With what's going on in the world today, guys, you aren't going to change a thing. But God will if you have faith. But don't forget, faith is connected to works. Are you praying? Are you getting down on your knees? Is it just a quick five-second thing and then you're done and going on? Or are you fasting, praying throughout the day? That's the kind of battle we're supposed to be fighting right now. One of faith. doesn't matter what news is saying. It doesn't matter what is, is going on in the world. What matters is God is looking for people to be standing up right now for him. So if you want a Gideon moment, set your heart to hear his word and worship God as Gideon did. Judges 7.3, whoever is fearful and afraid, he goes out there and he sees there like the number of the sand on the sea. And he says, if anybody's afraid, let him go home. I'd have gone home. <laughs> you end up with 300 people that stay behind. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who have lapped, I will save you. Uh, by the way, there were, I, I'm sorry, 10,000 remained. Then out of the 10,000, he says, okay, go, have them go get a drink of water. Those that lap, bring the water to their mouth, or those that get down and kind of drink it right from the stream like a dog, he, he's going to separate them. And those that lapped the water, which were 300, he says, those are the 300 you're going to go and fight this battle with. So... Um, Again, that would pretty much strip you of all of your strength <laughs> to realize this isn't going to be me doing anything outside of being faithful, just walking in faith. The weapons that they're going to use, again, don't seem to be weapons at all. Even in this picture that you can see, what do they have in their hands? A torch in one and a horn in the other. They're not even hanging on to a sword. They don't even have a free hand for that right now. So verse 22 says, When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled. What they did is they blew their trumpets, they threw their uh, pots down on the ground, sounded like whatever, and God was merciful. He says, If you still are scared, Gideon, let me help you with this faith. Go down and listen. And he hears this dream that one of the Midianites has about Gideon. And so it gives him some strength and encouragement even more. But nonetheless, uh, they didn't even have to fight because the Midianites turned on each other to fight each other. Ezekiel 38 verse 21. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Is this also a prophetic picture of end times? When you're going to be fighting one another. There's more of this type of thing. Look, it shall come to pass in that day, says Zechariah 14, 13, that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. This is an end times verse, Zechariah 14. Haggai 2, verse 22. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. 
That's what happened at Gideon. That's what's supposed to happen at the end. We're not going to have to fight. We just have to watch and walk in faith. Kind of find it interesting. We even see that going on in the world now, don't we? Judges 8.4, last verse. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with thorns. There's some more story that goes with this, but bottom line is the men of the town refused to give him food, and so later he's going to come back and, and whip them. Um, but he's speaking out of faith still at this point that they are going to be delivered. 120,000 men are going to fall at the hand of 300. And really, those 300 aren't doing a whole lot. He was against the absolute impossible. He didn't defeat them by torches and pots. He defeated them by faith. He doesn't say here, if the Lord has delivered, we're going to come back and I'm going to you know, take your, your leaders and whip them. He says, when we go get them, I'm coming back. That's the kind of thing we have to have. It's not if we're going to be okay. It's when we are okay, we are going to be praising and magnifying God, giving glory to Him, and we are going to serve Him and tell others that they better stop doing what they're doing and serve Him too. That's what we need to be doing.